We are in a series regarding the church. And thus far, we have looked at 15 principles, 15 ideas, 15 elements about the church, about what the church is and why the church matters. You could say it that way. That might be what an inquisitive person might say. Well, what is the church and why does it matter? Or perhaps you might see this concept of church a little bit more cynically and you might say, church, why bother? So whichever the case may be, the Bible says a lot about the church and the church is very important to God very critical to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only organism, it's the only entity that Jesus Christ ever said that he would bless and build. And that gives us a level of importance. And so far, we've seen 15 principles that give us a sense of the importance of the local church. And uh, last week, I uh, read from you, or week before, I read from you Uh, from a book by Sam Alberry called Why Bother with Church and other questions about why you need it and why it needs you. And this morning, I want to read from another little booklet called How Church Can Change Your Life, Answers to the Ten Most Common Questions About the Church. And so whether or not you're inquisitive or you're cynical, about the church. Listen to the following. This is a story about a young man named Brian. Brian was excited at the thought of discovering God's people. Unlike many people in the West, he had had very little exposure at all to any form of Christianity. Bizarrely, his parents had actually brought him up as a lesser member of a very small Wiccan sect, a satanic uh, witch sect. And so his familiarity with the traditions of Christian churches was minimal at best. Fortunately for Brian, his parents also had a very high view of education, had taught him to think well, and had done everything they could to send him to the best schools available. They wanted him to think, and think Brian did. It was not too long before Brian began to meet some uncomfortable truths while he was at university. He had always known that his background was a tad unusual, but it had not occurred to him quite how unusual it really was. So far, he had not yet met any other members of the same Wiccan sect at his university. In fact, he was not sure that there were any other members at any of the universities that he had applied to attend. He felt alone, felt alone, not ostracized because everyone was kind and friendly to him, but definitely an odd man out. That sense of estrangement by itself would not have been enough to have caused Brian to rethink his propositions. He had been well versed in the fact that truth is not decided by a democratic vote, and it did not overly concern him that so few people believed what he believed. If anything, it made him concerned for them. And he wanted to be able to reach out to them and explain the mysteries of his Wiccan coven. No, it was not that what he believed was unusual that began to bother Brian. It was that, it rapidly became clear, 
It was blatantly and simply wrong. Brian had been taught to think, and as he had been given the tools that come with a higher education to be able to think at a different level, the tenets of his unusual Wiccan sect soon appeared not simply bizarre, but downright duplicitous. To cut a long story short, Brian was then introduced to a Christian group at his university. He began to study the Bible. Before long, he had encountered Christ for himself. The man from Nazareth walked off the pages of Scripture and entered his life as the Lord of the galaxy. Brian was now, in other words, a Christian. The next step was to find a church. He tried the closest first. Not wanting to settle for second best, he then tried the next nearest. As a logical person and without any theological guardrails by which to direct him, he decided he would simply try them all out, one after the other, following a concentric circle moving out from his dormitory room. In some ways, they were all very similar, or at least all very different from what he had experienced growing up as a gathering of the supernatural. They read from the Bible. They prayed. They sang songs. Someone gave a talk based, sometimes more closely, sometimes frankly rather loosely, on a passage or passages from the Bible. One day, Brian walked into a church where the pastor did not simply announce his best idea for the day and talk about it, but explained carefully and applied relevantly the Scripture passage itself. He had the same experience of the man from Nazareth walking off the pages of Scripture and reaffirming his rightful rule over his heart and that of the entire universe. Brian was hooked. You see in that story how Jesus off the pages of Holy Scripture not only comes into your life, but through the church, Jesus comes off the pages of Holy Scripture into our collective lives. That's why you should not be self-styled in your worship, worshiping all alone, by yourself, however you want, in whatever way you want. Fact is, we need each other. You need me, and I desperately need you. And so because of that, I want to talk about five more principles about this need we have of each other, both to understand the church, like Brian, but also to thrive in the local church. And so let me give you number 16, number 16 in our list. You say, wait a minute, this is my first time here today. What are the other 15? Well, we have social media. We have ways that they have been recorded, and you can listen to them. And if you do, you'll catch up with those 15, and you'll, of course, know number 16, and here it is. The church collectively seeks the heart and will of God through prayer. That's one principle and uh, most important one regarding why we need the local church. What's the local church about? What ingredients, what elements, what cruciality is there for me in the local church? And here it is. The church collectively seeks the heart and will of God through prayer. How so? 
Well, remember last week when we went through the book of Acts and we saw some of those other principles that we covered last time? Well, let's go back to the book of Acts. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 1, I want to show you how critical this idea of prayer, especially corporate prayer, is for the life of the church and certainly for the life of the individual. I want you to see, I want you to... to conjure up in your mind the the crucial nature of our gathering together to pray. In Acts chapter 1, for example, now remember, this is the book of Acts. This is the works of the Holy Spirit through the apostles to build the church. You remember in Acts chapter 2, we said last time that Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was that unique and unrepeatable event where the church, the body of Christ, was uniquely formed. And in Acts chapter 1, as a prelude for that, what was the church doing when they were waiting as Jesus had commanded them? What were they doing? Now, you say, well, you just said church, but you said it wasn't formed until Acts chapter 2. Well, that's correct. But remember, all the way back in Matthew 16, as we discussed in a couple of messages ago, we said that Jesus was going to form his church. He already had his own disciples, and they were reaching out to other disciples. And so we could say there was a nascent church. Uh, There was a sort of preformed gathering or group of people, mostly out of Israel, of course, but uh, this group of people were set to be formed into a very unique body, the body of Christ. And by the way, do you know that of all of these metaphors in the Old Testament that are carried over in the New Testament about the people of God, that so many of them are carried over very well in our context, like the sheep of God's fold, right? Just to use an example of one. But guess which one isn't in the Old Testament and is unique to the new covenant? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. You'll look in vain in your Old Testament to to find a metaphor like the body to speak of Israel, the people of God. But in the New Testament, you find that with both Jew and Gentile, you're seeing something new, something incredibly dynamic, and that's the church, the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so this nascent group, uh, this preformed body, uh, it had some of the seeds of its growth early on in Matthew 6, first time the word church is used in our New Testament, canonically speaking. And in chapter 18, you talk about a process for forgiveness and reconciliation. We've gone over that. And you come then to the book of Acts, and you find even here in Acts chapter 1 that they they are waiting, and one of the things that they're waiting for God to do what he's going to do, which of course is in Acts 2 and Pentecost, the forming of the body of Christ, one of the things that they are doing while they're waiting is praying. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these, this little ragtag bunch, the apostles, the disciples, and Jesus' mother Mary, and his brothers... Uh, This is who is in the context of Acts chapter 1, who are waiting. They're waiting because Jesus commanded them to do so. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? Prayer. Now, prayer itself wouldn't have been unique to them. It wouldn't have been original to them. But prayer was a gathering together so that 
we were, would be of one accord and that we would be praying to God. But notice I want you to see that word devoting, devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting, single-minded commitment. Single-minded commitment. To whom? Well, certainly to each other, but primarily to God. They were speaking to God. You say, what is prayer? Speaking to God. That's all it is. You're you're unburdening yourself to God. And in Acts chapter 1, wouldn't there be a time of unburdening oneself when Jesus has been ascended to the Father? He's been their master and their Lord, and he's taught them, and he's walked with them, and he's encouraged them, and he's adjured them, and he's warned them, and he has fed them, and this is our master and Lord and our teacher, our rabbi, and where has he gone? They're bereft of Jesus now, or so they may think, even though Jesus said, and I will bring you a helper, a, a comforter, one called alongside, and, and you will not be alone. I will be with you in his person, the person of the Holy Spirit. But when you're bereft, when you're left alone, you don't always think clearly, right? And when you don't think clearly, the, the thing that is uppermost in your mind or should be is talking to God bringing your burdens to him. And they would have had a huge burden. Our Messiah, our Lord, our Redeemer, he has left. What are we going to do now? And so they say in verse 14, all these with one accord, which means that they were all together, they had a singleness of purpose, and they were single-mindedly committed in the devotion of themselves together for prayer. And you cannot read, my friends, the book of Acts unless you're reading quite regularly of this commitment to prayer. Look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 42. And we're skipping over the Pentecost event, that unique and unrepeatable event. The church, the body of Christ is formed. It's formed with uh, those who didn't even speak the same languages, and God gave miraculous abilities for people who'd never studied another language to speak a language that would be speaking a word of the gospel, and people in their own native tongue heard these people who'd never studied these languages. That's called the miraculous gift of tongues, and they heard the gospel in their own language by a miracle. And this gospel then brought them to Jesus Christ, and they were added to the body of Christ by Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit's miracles so that the body of Christ would be formed. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, notice this, and then notice the same word, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Don't miss that word devoted. Single-minded commitment. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, that passage was, was quoted earlier in our service, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, the first part of verse 47 says. Praising God. How do you praise God? Well, you can sing. You can sing when you praise God, right? We just did it. But what's the most unique thing 
that even as individuals, though in a corporate gathering, in a group gathering, can do to praise God? Well, you lift your prayers to Him. You, you lift your prayers to this God, and you say to this God, I praise you. I glorify you. I magnify you. You know, even when we are corporately singing, we shouldn't just sort of uh, mouth the words without also, in addition to our corporate singing, also praying as we sing. You know, when, you, when you're touched by a certain line in a song, and when it really hits you, even if it doesn't hit anybody else, you can say, Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you for the truth of that. Oh, wait a minute. I'm supposed to continue singing. But you can pray as you sing. And as you sing, you pray. And as you pray, you want to sing more. And this is what they're doing. They're praising God for all of this. Look at chapter 4. This is most amazing. Even in the midst of conflict and hostility, look at verse 24 of chapter 4. And these are just a few examples, and we'll move on to the next principle. But you can see as well as I can see that prayer was a vital part of the early church. So it is then, so it must be now, Acts 4.24. And when they heard it, what? What did they hear? That Peter and others had been released from prison. They went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to whom? To God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then it goes on. They're praying. They said to God. That's what prayer is. You say things to God. And we don't have time, but if you read through that, there's so much theology in their prayers. There's so much history in their prayers. And that's not a problem. If you don't know what to pray for, Go to a place like Acts chapter 4 in your quiet time and just read the verses and say, God, I want to recite the theology about you, sovereign Lord, and I want to recite the history about you in the nation of Israel, and I want to pray these things to you. Can I read this to you, Lord, and can you be glorified through it? I think you can be glorified through the inspired Scripture, don't you? See, this is, this is what they're committed to, and they're so committed not to just the theology of it and the history of it, but the one to whom they're actually praying, the sovereign Lord, and because of that, notice what's happening. Now, this is a miracle. This is not something that we can so expect here, but nonetheless, we can receive Holy Spirit power, the power that He wants to do His will and purpose through us even today, even if it doesn't have these miraculous elements to it. But go down, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. We read that. We read that before. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And they 
took care of each other. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many uh, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." So they were loving each other. We read that verse a couple of weeks ago, and we were meeting the needs of each other, this early church, as they were talking to one another. What are your needs, brother? What are your needs, sister? I want to meet your needs. I want to give of uh, my excess to you. I want to give sacrificially. So they were giving, they were loving, they were caring, but they were also praying. And they were devoted to that prayer because right in the middle of this whole section, They say this in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, praise God for the flickering light, (laughs) to accentuate what I'm saying. See the power in such a voice. God is glorified when we pray, and things happen. Maybe not the miraculous things that are happening here, but a flickering light here and there is encouraging. Here's the word. Here's a key word regarding prayer, accessibility, accessibility. God is accessible to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through this cross work of that Lord Jesus, we have access to the Father. We can pray. We can ask Him for things. We can ask Him for things individually in our own families. But what's even more exciting is that we can ask Him for things corporately as a church. That's why as soon as I arrived In October of 2016 at Bethany Church with our little flock, merging with Bethany and now, of course, with the Bridge Moore Park joining with us, we've instituted and we will never let up our corporate prayers together. Now, there are individual prayer times where little groups of folks get together like Sunday mornings at 8.30 in the library. Faithful people gather there. If you want to join them, you can do that. We have people who are praying for us and pray for those who need specific answers to their prayers in room 201, just uh, right through that wall there. And that happens after the service comes to a close. And then there are individual prayer times. There's a ladies' prayer time at 10 o'clock on Thursday mornings, or uh, Tuesday mornings. And that is a specific generated commitment to prayer for the ministries of our church. And I could go on and on and on. But the most important and the most strategic prayer time that we have at this local church is on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock. And you ought to be there. You ought to be there. Would you not have been there if that was the constituted time of prayer in the early church? They'd said, we're meeting at 6 o'clock, and there was such hostility and anger and volatility on the part of this new group, Christianity, and some of them were losing their lives. Do you know that as you you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you find uh, James, uh, one of these 
pillars of the church is murdered. Peter imprisoned. And they're singing joy to the Lord and they're in prison. And they may have assumed we might not ever give out. We might not ever get out. So you're praying. I mean, would it be that we would only have a full house like this on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock only if somebody had a gun to our head and hostility and anger toward Christians? I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. It may seem like that. But it's only this. Our church, listen to this very carefully, our church will only be as strong spiritually, both individually and collectively, as our strength in our devotion to prayer, corporate prayer. Now, I love it when people come up and say, Pastor, I'm praying for you, and I pray for you every day of my life. Do you want to know what encouragement that is to the preacher, the pastor? I pray for the elders and the deacons every day. I just, I can't tell you what that means. We're praying for you and your wife as she struggles with this cancer. We pray for our leaders, that they would be sound in judgment, that they would be able preachers of the Word of God. That's wonderful. And Chris and I want to return the favor to you by leading you in prayer corporately on Sunday nights. And we've got so much to pray about that we can't possibly do it both individually and collectively in that setting, but we're sure going to try. Week after week after week after week, we're going to give ourselves to corporate prayer for you and with you to our sovereign Lord. I was so encouraged last Sunday night. I came to hear a fine exposition of the epistle to Jude from Pastor Chris And then we prayed together, and there were somewhere between 50 and 60 people who came. I was so encouraged, not just with the mere numbers, but every single individual represents a praying life, a praying heart. I mean, maybe God would do some more flickering lights if we all came tonight (laughs) at 6 o'clock, and I would love it so. Why? Not for my sake, not for your sake, not to tell everybody, hey, look at our prayer time. Other churches, take note. No, we want to pray for our church and its various needs so that we are so impacted by what God is doing, we can attribute it to nothing other than our prayers. Not the ingenuity of the leaders, Not all these fine and snazzy classes that we're teaching and assembling. Not for all of the things that are happening in men's and women's and missions and children's and men's ministry and women's ministry. We're we're not good enough to do things that are fancy. I'm not skilled enough to think about how to do all these things that engender a crowd. I'm not that good. What I'm actually banking on are two things called the chief means of grace, the Word of God and prayer, the Word of God and prayer. And because of that, we must move on. Number 17, number 17, the church exalts, exalts, not exalts, exalts or rejoices in the grace of God. 
the church rejoices in the grace of God. Now, if there's one thing that should mark out the church is that when we read the Word of God and when we avail ourselves of corporate praying, one of the most endearing aspects of the Word of God and our prayer lives is to rejoice, to exult in the grace of God. The grace of God. The favor of God. The unabashed mercy of God that He lavishes on us by and through grace. Look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great place to go, of course. The New Testament is filled with attestations of the grace of God, the grace that we've received. Ephesians chapter 1, listen to it very, very carefully. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, there's a ton of theology that I just read, right? But notice verse 6. It's all to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And He doesn't just say the glorious grace once. Look at verse 7, latter part. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which is set forth in Christ, His glorious grace, His grace, His matchless grace. That's why the key word here is immeasurability. His grace cannot be measured. His grace is immeasurable. There's an immeasurability to God's grace that you and I, think about this, are always indebted to grace, and we get further and further and further behind. Gloriously so. Think about it this way. If you and I, who've been given the grace of God in salvation in Jesus Christ, not our works, not anything that we've done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy. We'll look at that passage in a moment. But it is by the sheer grace of God that we've been saved. And we wallow in that grace. We're lavished with that grace. It is not sprinkled on us. It is showered upon us. And because of that, every time we receive the grace of God, the only way that we can properly thank God is by receiving more grace in order to pray prayers, thanking Him for His grace. Every time we read the Word of God and we read about His grace, we're actually in our sight reading of the New Testament asking Him for what? Good eyes. And when we have good eyes to read the pages off the Word of God, we're actually receiving grace from Him to do so. Do you realize then that every time You bask in the grace, it takes more grace in which to bask. And do you realize that someone who is receiving every day in multiple measure the grace of God 
is actually praising God, which takes more grace, which means the more grace he has at his supply is given to us so that we can respond with more praise, which takes more grace. You follow? You say, why do you speak about this? Well, I remember reading from our brother, John Piper, a very, very interesting principle, and I think he's dead on target. He says in one of his writings, beware of the debtor's ethic. Beware of the debtor's ethic. What's the debtor's ethic? Well, the debtor's ethic is something like this. If someone, let's say an ungracious person or maybe just an unthinking person, is saying something like this, well, yes, I'm in debt to so-and-so. I'm in debt to someone. I'm in debt to this project, that idea, that concept, that work, that labor. But if I work diligently at such a task to receive what it is I want to receive, then I expect some kind of payment. If I work for my job, I expect a paycheck. And so, if I work really, really hard, I, in fact, shall get what's coming to me because I've worked for it. Well, because grace is wholly other than that, I didn't work for the grace I've received. It came to me by grace. It came to me in grace. It came to me from a gracious God then I can never work enough to satisfy the debtor's ethic that I did all that was required of me so that I can receive grace, something that I merited, something that I worked for, something that's owed to me, which means something like this, according to Piper. The more we're in Christ, the more we grow in Christ, the more labor we do as Christians, even in our sanctification, requires more grace. And when it requires more grace, since I can never exhaust the grace of God, I can never pay it back. But there are some Christians who apparently assume that once initial grace has been received, then I'm going to work it off over time by my good deeds. The only problem with that is you never outwork the grace of God received. You never can do enough work to pay God back. Beware of the debtor's ethic of always thinking that in order for me to be good, in order for me to be righteous, in order for me to do everything that God requires of me in my holiness, in my pursuit of my sanctification, then it's going to require grace. But at some point, I've got to work so hard that I sort of fill up the measure of such grace and I pay God off. I, I fulfill the debt. I am able to not only sign the contract, but the contract has now been executed and uh, I get what is owed to me. Well, the grace of God doesn't work like that, does it? The more I live my Christian life, the more I'm indebted to grace. And the more breath I have, it's the grace of God so that what I do can never fully exhaust the grace of God. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the great aspects of eternity, heaven, future glory, is that you and I will watch the eternal unfolding of all the ways that I have been graced in this life and all of the ways that I'll continue to be given grace from God in all eternity. 
Because even everything that I'll be watching in heaven and that I'll be seeing of the glories of our master is itself still an extension of such grace. Which means I can never pay God back. Which means I can never exhaust grace because every time I try to exhaust grace, there's more grace being given. Therefore, I just need to thank God for his glorious grace. And in light of such grace, which is never ending, which is in full supply, which will never run out, I just simply thank him through my work in my holiness as a Christian, through my work in the church as a corporate body, and in my own prayers, I thank God for the never ending supply. What a proposition! What a great thing, which means that one of the very aspects of the church of Jesus Christ is that you and I are on a forever quest to exalt the grace of God, to exalt in it, to rejoice in it. Is that, is that what you do in your life? Do you, do you rejoice in the grace of God? You say, well, of course I do. Of course I rejoice in the grace of God. But there are some things that I just have to pull up by my own bootstraps and do it myself. Beware of the Protestant debtor's ethic. Beware of, well, yeah, there's some things that God has to give me in ample supply, but then there are some things that I've got to do. And even the Apostle Paul recognized it. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked more than you all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. He's always given himself that qualifier because he always knows that while you and I are commanded to do good works, we're commanded to work hard, we're commanded to be diligent, we're commanded to read the Word of God and study it, we're commanded to pray, we're commanded to do all of these things that amount to the holiness of the Christian, and yet all those things that we do are always engendering more grace in which to accomplish. So you never get out of debt, and that's a glorious thing. You, you have an immeasurability of that grace. Look at, look at verse 12 of Ephesians 1. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And what kind of glory? The praise of his glorious grace. Verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look at Chapter 2 of Ephesians, you know this quite well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this grace through faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I can see someone saying it right now. Yes, I'm created in Christ Jesus for those good works, and I'm going to do such good works because that's what I'm responsible to do. Yes, you are, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See the balance? 
How can I do such things? How can I work hard? How can I pray? How can I read my Bible? How can I come at 6 o'clock on a Sunday night and pray with the saints? How can I say, the spirit is so willing, but the flesh is weak? And by the way, do you know that there's an NFC and AFC set of championship games this Sunday? Yes, as a sports lover, I'm fully aware of that. And it'll be the grace of God that gets me in the car as well. But I want to come and pray with you. I want to pray with you. And I want you to pray with me. Because together we'll rejoice and exult in the grace of God. Number 18. Number 18, the church is the theater of God's powerful triumph. The church is the theater of God's powerful triumph. If you're already in Ephesians 1, what does it say in verse 19? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? What is it? Well, it's according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Christ from the dead and when He seated Christ at His right hand in the heavenly places. So, so what's the theater of God's grace? What's the theater of His powerful triumph in grace? What is it? Well, how many passages in the New Testament, including here in Ephesians 1, are we told something like this? Look at verse 20. He worked in Christ, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, when we receive the work of grace by God, the church then collectively becomes the theater of God's grace. We become actually, to the watching world, the very theater which they see the grace of God operating. And ultimately, we're the ones who triumph in such grace. The triumph is ours in Christ. You know, the church is not just for my needs being met. It's not just for my fellowship. Now, we're going to be starting these flocks, groups, fellowship, leadership, outreach, caring, knowledge, and salt. We are going to be starting them so that you and I can grow together in a smaller context so that we can grow in our holiness, grow in our fellowship with one another. We establish leadership through this. We, we get more informed about outreach. We care for one another. We are studying the Bible in those groups. Therefore, we have the knowledge that matures us to the Son of God, to a mature measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we are salt, the S in flocks, because you and I are not just for the church. We're an extension of the church when we go out and preach Christ to others. And because of that, you and I both individually and collectively become, as it were, a theater of the triumph of the grace of God. What's the key word there? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. What's this theater of God's powerful triumph? That your stubborn will and my depravity has been conquered through the grace of God in Christ. 
I, I talk to people all the time, and they, they, they talk about their inability to do this or that, or to think in a, any differently, or to break bad habits, or to do this or that. And you and I can say, the greatest habit that was broken in my life when I came to Christ was the habit of depravity, which is me. And I couldn't do it on my own. And it was the grace of God that allowed me to triumph in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is all about. We're a theater to show people how Christ's grace has been triumphed through our lives, through our dead, angry, hateful, bitter, depraved lives. You say, boy, that's so negative. Well, it's the negative that gives way to the positive, that my depravity has been triumphed by the grace of God in Christ. And, and, and who's watching in the theater? I'll tell you who's watching. All rule, all authority, all power, every name that is named, not only in this age but the age to come. And Jesus has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. God has given Jesus the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all so that his theater with he as sovereign Lord is being put on display. You mean our little church? Our little church, our little local church is the theater of God's grace? Yes. Yes. And I said last time, we're a bunch of ragtags. We're nothing special. But as we continue to grow, as we continue to work, as we continue to do what we do in ministry with and for each other, and as we continue to outreach into the world, we're asking God to show through our lives the theater of his triumph. When I was praying with our 88-year-old brother, Daryl McSeveny, who's doing well, he's in a rehab place, went by yesterday and saw him. And I said to Mr. Daryl, 88 years old, and he had this cancer surgery, and he's trying to get better, and he's trying to get more strengthened. And I said to him right before that surgery, Daryl, what's the number one prayer request? What's your number one prayer request? I could pray about a lot of things for you. I could pray about the doctor's hands, their, their, their surgical wisdom, their knowledge, the caring of the nurses, the hospital staff. I could be praying about your family, your daughter Lisa, your son Todd. I could, I could be praying about a lot of things. But you, my friend, in this short amount of time, right before this surgery, you tell me the one thing that I ought to pray for you regarding. And he said, and I quote, Please pray for me that I would increase in my faith and that my, my faith would be allowed to be practiced. And I said, I, that may be the greatest prayer request I've ever received to pray for somebody regarding. Here's an 88-year-old man who, who may be looking at his own home going. And he said, pray that my faith would grow and that I would practice this ever-growing faith in my life. I just thought, what a, what a precious man you are. You could have been praying about a whole lot of things. Pray that the doc had a really great sleep last night. That's not an illegitimate prayer request, is it? Of course not. And I think what Daryl was saying is, I want to be one among a throng 
who are living in triumph through a growing faith and the practice thereof? I think so. And ultimately, when all that happens, then the entire universe, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named, will see such triumph in Christ. Hey, as the old song said, this world is not my home, we're just passing through. We're just passing through. We got another home. And that home in the beyond where there's no sin, no sorrow, no tears, no fallenness whatsoever, there, my friends, I guarantee you, is total and perfect and complete triumph in Christ. And we're being prepared for that day. And when we do, we might very well be exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. Just listen to it. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.12, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went out to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You know, in that day when there was a battle and when the victory was secured by one side over against another, they would triumph over that beleaguered foe by not only imprisoning those they wished, but they would go through the very center square of that vanquished foe, and they would actually take the colonel, the general, those who were in charge of everybody else, and they would parade them through the market square to show that we triumphed over you. And you and I have been conquered by Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is that God in Christ will lead us in triumphal procession and through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ everywhere for we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, those who are perishing, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life, those who are being saved. Now, I know Paul's like you and he's like me. Triumph, I'm in a battle, I'm supposed to be waging war, I don't have the strength, I don't have the character, I don't have the fortitude, I need help. And that's why he says in the next verse, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? The answer, God is sufficient. And he will lead us in triumph in Christ. Why? Because he's the sovereign Lord. That's why the key word there is sovereignty. Number 19. Number 19. The church funds the worldwide spreading of the gospel. The church funds the worldwide spreading of the gospel. We don't have time, but let me encourage you to look up 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 4 to 14. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, which talks about the weekly capturing of our offerings for the sake of missions and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters. But I do want to share with you Philippians 4, and I won't share all of it with you because I'll steal my own thunder before we get there. Philippians chapter 4, but it does say this. 
Even in Thessalonica, Philippians 4.16, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment. This is, this is money. This is material goods, folks. And more, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And this is what he calls these gifts, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what he's talking about there? Let's call it material reciprocity. Material reciprocity. It's a reciprocal relationship. You have needs, I want to meet your needs. I have needs, you meet my needs. I'm running toward you to meet your needs, you're running to me to meet my needs, and we meet somewhere in the middle, right? This is, this is the church funding each other so that we can be strengthened and built up so that we can reach out with the gospel to the four corners of the earth. North, south, east, and west. This is, this is what the church is all about. Let's call that keyword generosity. Generosity. Looking for an IT word, ITY word? That's a good one. Generosity. This is, this is God doing for us, with us, for us, through each other. You can't get that through some other entity. You say, oh, yes, you can. I mean, there are organizations where good people are working and, and needs are met. yes but not always for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Not for the sake of a gospel witness. Not not just making sure that people's bodies are clothed and not just making sure that their bellies are filled, but doing it in the name of Jesus Christ and not being ashamed of saying it. I'm doing this in the name of Christ. Jesus even said in Matthew 25, somebody gave me a cup of cool water. In Jesus' name, you say to him and all of his followers. Because to the least of these you've done it, you've done it to me. So be generous. That's what the church is and does. And number 20, and finally, the church worships, witnesses, and waits for the return of Jesus Christ. The church worships, witnesses, and waits for the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, i gotta got to take you as we close to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. This, is, this may be the most important passage of all when it's talking about what you and I are all about as we think of what our role is to the coming Christ. Here, here's our role to the coming Christ. You see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I, I, I just am amazed at this. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. You know what that is? That's from a Greek word from which we derive the English word echo. Echo. The word of the Lord is echoing from you. From those in Macedonia and those in Achaia, and your faith in God has gone forth. It's echoed everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you. And, and this is tantamount to what Christianity is. This is what conversion is, folks. How you turn, returned, repented toward God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here's what you did. You turned away from your idol seeking and you turned toward God. That's a great testimony term. 
and this, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. To wait for his son from heaven. So what do we do while we wait? We worship. We worship just like we did today. By the way, I am in love with the violin. It is so sweet, so melodic. Not to the consternation of every other instrument, but if I had pride of place, I think it might be the violin. Why? Because it soothes the conscience of the soul that is beleaguered by the perceptions of the depravity of this world. It's like David playing that harp. It's a way for you and me to come in while we wait so that we may worship. And we're not just worshiping, we're also witnessing. We're witnessing. We're we're saying to others, I pray that you would be delivered from the wrath to come. Oh, my friends, the key word here is nobility. You say, "What, what nobility? We worship the noble king. We witness about the noble king's coming, and we wait for the noble king's return. We're, we're, we're his subjects, and we wait, but we don't just wait. We witness, and we don't just witness, we worship. That's what the church is all about. This is who we are. This is, this is our life breath. This, this, is our, this is our vocation and our avocation. This is, this is what we do. Why? Because we are waiting for this noble king to come, and while doing so, we witness and worship the risen Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is a kind of message that centers itself on the truth that Jesus is alive, and that he's here, and that he's with us, and that he loves us. And he's with us in the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit who grants us opportunity to love and serve and be the church and understand what the church is and why we should bother with the church and why the church matters. You can't get this anywhere else. You can't replicate this in some organization, some group, some gathering. It doesn't have all the components. It doesn't have all the pieces Oh, it might have one or two here and there, but it doesn't have all these. It doesn't have all these 20 and the five to come next week. This is is what the church is all about and so much more. Oh, Lord, let us not only understand the church, but by your grace, this immeasurable grace of God in Christ, let us be the church for your honor and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.